Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. I'm John and with me as always is my co-host Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? I am okay, I think. <laughs> how are you? Uh, that, was, that sounded a very, like a very enthusiastic okay. It's uh, a case of mind over matter sometimes. I see, it's, it makes sense. I'm doing well, is, uh, pretty well. A little tired, uh, work-related stuff, but otherwise doing pretty well. So today we'll continue our coverage of 90s Asian cinema with perhaps our first comedy, question mark, uh, which be, that being the 1995 Hong Kong film Out of the Dark, starring Stephen Chow and directed by his uh, collaborator Jeffrey Lau. But before we get to that, uh, Jason, what have you been watching or reading in the last couple of weeks since we recorded our last episode? Well, in between doing a lot of DIY and gardening, which I've been doing all day today with my family. Um, so, so that was the reason for my uh, enthusiastic uh, checkup. So, is that is so? Are you saying gardening is, does not agree with you, or are you simply tired from it? Just simply tired. Ah, okay. <laughs> but uh, some refreshing films. So, I began the week with a horror film called And Soon the Darkness, atmospheric Anglo-French murder mystery from 1970 about two English nurses who go on a cycling holiday in France and one of them goes missing. I watched Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers on Tuesday. That was a struggle to watch. Uh, I kept falling asleep because I've been tired this week between work and DIY and gardening. Um, I watched Cannibalistic Humanoid Underground Dwellers. Um, a horror movie from 1984. Is it is it a, a giallo? Because the title sounds like it, it's one of those Italian movies. <laughs> yeah, like uh, your vice is a locked room and only I have it, the key. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it's a low budget American horror movie. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, it's it takes advantage of like a real social issue, which is homeless people living underground, and uh, it posits that. If you leave toxic waste underground, these homeless people turn into cannibals, uh, cannibal monsters, and they all rise from the depths and uh, kidnap New Yorkers. And uh, later in the week, I watched uh, two Takeshi Kitano films, um, A Scene at the Sea and Kids Return. So in the last episode, we uh, went over Hanabi, and I said it was in my top three, possibly four, and I wanted to see which titles would be number one and number two. Now, usually it's Kids Return at number one and A Scene at the Sea at number two. But this time round, I've placed A Scene at the Sea at number one and Kids Return at number two. I, I have to rewatch A Scene at Sea because last time, you know, I, I enjoyed it. It was, it was, uh, I wasn't impressed by it as, as you were. But again, this was a long time ago and I was very young at the time. So it is possible that if I rewatch it now, maybe I'll, I'll gain new appreciation for the film. 
Yeah, it's I I think it's easier to get into his gangster films, um, especially with like the excesses and violence. They they can draw all sorts of emotions out. Um, what I appreciate about a scene at the sea and kids return is like they build up a sense of um, a community and the characters having a place in the community. In the case of kids return, it's working class Tokyo, and with a scene at the sea, it's uh, the surfing scene uh, in um, Chiba Prefecture. And I think Okinawa, and um, it's a, like a scene that sees a very beautiful story. And um, in contrast to Kitano's nihilistic films, this one's very um, life affirming. Maybe that's why at the time I was maybe used to a different kind of Kitano. So maybe that's why Scene of the Sea just didn't hit me as much as I wanted to. So maybe it was a matter of um, expectations. Yeah. It, it could be like it totally stands out uh, from his other works building, uh, leading up to it. It's a totally different pace, really laid back, uh, a quiet film, especially because there's so little dialogue in there. And you get the feeling that Kitano's really trying to push himself out of his comfort zone. He's not in it for a start, and um, it's not in a genre that um, he's comfortable with. And um, yeah, he's trying to express a story through um, most, uh, he mostly through um, deaf characters who don't give any who don't give any dialogue so it's just their facial expressions so it's like a real artistic test for him and i also finished watching the anime after the rain which is on amazon prime i uh the first four five episodes were a one-sided romance between a high school girl and an older guy and it wasn't until about episode five where the older guy acknowledges the romantic feelings that it started to get interesting because um the older character like this could be a really sketchy show, but what happens is the older character takes the young character's feelings seriously and treats her with kindness, and um, he keeps a boundary between the two of them. And the story goes on to explore how both characters are dealing with feelings of failure and fear of the future, and how like like romance is sort of like displacing those feelings, and they learn to inspire each other so they can move forward in a positive manner. And uh, yeah, that was what I watched this week. And uh, that was a one season only show, right? Yeah, one season, 12 episodes. It's on Amazon Prime. And uh, there are other anime on there. Um, Psychopath Season 3 is the next one I've got lined up. Okay. Uh, well, since you mentioned it, I also watched an anime uh, this week. And it was the, or I'm still in the process of watching it, is the season four of Attack on Titan. Okay. I was waiting for the the season to finish before because i didn't i don't want to you know watch i didn't want to watch every episode a week as they were coming out but apparently they released the first part of the fourth season and the second part is gonna there's gonna be a while before it comes out so i figured might as well watch season four and it took an interesting direction that i didn't expect it i mean there's just to give a bit of spoilers there's some time that passes off screen in the story between the end of season three and the end of season four and the changes that had happened throughout that time seemed a little bit too abrupt in my opinion although we'll see how the season progresses i've only seen like five or six episodes so far mm. or maybe nine i think i think i stopped at episode nine yeah something like that i don't remember exactly i watched the original assault on precinct 13 oh john carpenter classic yes and i hadn't uh, i hadn't seen it I, I'd seen the remake, strangely enough. I think I just caught it on TV one time. John Carpenter is a relatively recent discovery for me, primarily because every time I've read about him or every time I've heard people talk about him, 
he's often been lumped together with David Cronenberg. Mm. And I have seen, and I think I think that is unfair, but somehow I think just because both of them have released gory horror films, somehow that puts them in the same category. But I don't think it doesn't. And I had seen a bunch of Cronenberg films, and I'm not a huge fan of Cronenberg. So that, I think that's why I subconsciously avoided Carpenter. But I've recently, and when I say recently, I mean the last three years or so, I've been kind of trying to discover them, you know, one by one. And I'm just pleasantly surprised at how good they are, especially his 70s and 80s stuff. Yes, yeah, really stripped down, focused sort of thrillers and horror films. And with and action films, really good mm. action with, you know, a very conscious show, social aspect to it uh, in a way that it seemed to me Carpenter was very observant of American society in the 80s and doesn't make that the focus of his film, but whenever it is there, it is very accurately depicted. So I watched a lot of these films as a teenager. I'm going to have to uh, rewatch them just to get that aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, the only one, the only film where that part is explicit is uh, They Live, obviously. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and you know, Assault, Assault on Precinct 13, there's a lot of subtle commentary there about race in America. The one black policeman, which is the protagonist of him, is, is so casually dismissed multiple times. And it's, you know, there, there are reasons why he's dismissed, but I feel like an underpinning about that is, has to do with race. But of course, it's, there's other interpretations to it. So it's, it's, I think that's why I appreciate this subtlety, this, this possibility that exists in his films. Mm. Uh, yeah, in the remake, Ethan Hawke was the uh, commander taking over the police station, wasn't he? Yeah, and uh, I think there is uh, his uh, the the criminal is black in that one. Yeah, Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah, something like that. I I, yeah. I, I, I never remember if it's Fishburne or Samuel L. Jackson, but I think it's Fishburne. Yeah. Yeah, I actually went to see that in the cinema. I'm pretty sure I played on TV like many action movies did all the time. So I'm pretty sure I've seen it more than once, but I don't think I've deliberately sort it out like watch a dvd or something if you get around to watching um uh in the mouth of madness let me know what you think yeah so that's the the i've, I, I've not made my way to the 90s yet so i i, I kind of finished all his 70s and 80s stuff and i think now i'm probably going to jump into his 90s work i think it's a 91 92 something like that right mm, yeah it's like um prince of darkness and then in the mouth of madness i think yeah so I'm definitely, yeah, I'm definitely going to check it out. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely interested in the Lovecraftian connections with that one. It's probably the most, you know, there's the Lovecraft, there's references to Lovecraft in, in a lot of Carpenter's work, like uh, in uh, The Thing being the most notable one, but that one is very explicitly based on a Lovecraft story. So I'm curious to see how, how well he accomplishes it. Yeah. Just uh, which Cronenberg films do you rate highly? So I've seen, uh, what ones I've seen? I've seen Crash. I've seen uh, the one with James Woods. Oh, uh, uh, Video. Oh. Videodrome. Videodrome, yes. What else? I don't remember. The one, the one with the typewriter? I'm not sure. I don't remember. I, I wouldn't rate any of them highly, to be honest. It's, it's, I'm not saying he's a bad filmmaker. It's just personally, I just couldn't find him appealing when, when I watched it. Perhaps. Perhaps he's like, you know, one of those filmmakers that I'm going to have to reevaluate. Yeah. But at the time that I watched him, I didn't think very highly of him. Yeah, th there's a, a couple on Amazon Prime. So it's with... Um, the Fly. I've seen The Fly. Yeah, The Brood. Have you seen The Brood? I don't think so. Okay. Um, and what's the one with... Naked Lunch. Naked Lunch was the one that I was thinking. 
which is the poster has a very, I saw that only because the poster has a guy with a typewriter as a face. And I, I'm pretty sure it is based on a Kafka story or, or a, is it Burroughs? Something. William, is it William S. Burroughs? Oh yeah, maybe. Perhaps, perhaps that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Okay. I, have, I haven't seen that it, one. That says how much, how long ago this was. It was several years ago. So I remember very little of, of Yeah. Uh, this, oh, I think, I think a Kafka story was adapted by another filmmaker that was released around the same time, and maybe I'm confusing those two. But anyway, please go, go. Oh, on. Scanners and Rabbit. They're okay, on, I've not seen those. Yeah, they're on Prime. I'm not sure about in America, but uh, the Brood as well. That's on Prime. Um, his early stuff is really good. Yeah, I think, I think sort of my not dislike, but maybe dismissal of Cronenberg kind of is the same as my somewhat dismissal of Mike, which we've brought we brought up I've brought up several times. Perhaps you appreciate Mike more than I do, so perhaps it makes sense that you would also like Cronenberg. And there's nothing I'm not saying again, I'm not making an objective case. I'm just it's purely subjective. I think the I feel like sometimes the spectacle or the 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 gore takes precedence over over substance. Although Videodrome is is full of, you know, philosophical subtext, but I just, I found it to be all over the place without a clear focal point, uh, just to put it one way. Yeah, again, this is like films I haven't seen since I was a teenager, but I have watched The Brood and uh, Rabbids recently, so um, I thought they were really good. Yeah, per- I mean, perhaps if I if I explore him now, perhaps I'll have a different opinion of him, who knows? Yeah. Okay, just to, to to go over the rest of my watches really quick. I watched a, a Chinese ghost story, Sui Hark produced. I forget who the director of that is, but it stars Leslie Chong, um, and I forget the name of the actress. But it's sort of the, uh, and it's it's a, might be a little relevant with our dis- the, the discussion that we're going to have today. But it's the film that started a trend of uh, folklore inspired. Uh, horror films in Hong Kong at the late 80s and early 90s, which uh, serve as an influence for our current film, or the film that we're discussing in this episode, uh, or at least partial influence. I, what else? I read a novel called This Is How You Lose the Time War. Uh, it's by, uh, Amal, by a Canadian writer, Amal El Motar and Max Gladstone. Um, so two authors. And it's a sort of a relatively short science fiction novel about two entities that are fighting a war through time travel. And lastly, I have been playing a little bit of Morrowind. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the game. Yeah, I got it on the original Xbox. Oh, okay. I'm playing it on a PC. It's probably the best way to play it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you get a lot more out of it on a PC because of, there's so many mods available for it that correct bugs and improve the gameplay experience. Yeah. And I've played it before. This is not the first time. This is sort of a replay for me. Yeah, I just weirdly enough, I was thinking about the game quite recently and how it was always interesting to find the uh, Dwemer ruins, but it got old pretty quick. I'm not a particular fan of open world games. Yeah, it's it gets tired, so you have to. It's it it appeals to a certain type of player, and it's also you have to you have to pace yourself. I feel like it's interesting, and I think that the open world aspects of it, I think they improved in the later games in the series, like in Oblivion and Skyrim. Mm. Uh, in uh, in Morrowind was a little bit too loose-ended, but the depth of the universe and the world building is what attracts me. Not so much just going around and finding random ruins. I like, you know, exploring the towns and <laughs> and 
uh, abusing the crafting and the potion, the brewing system yeah. in the game. But uh, I mean, and I, I do a little bit of exploring. And it's not like I'm playing that much. It's, you know, a little bit uh, here and there just to pass the time when I have some free time. I think that's a common thing when you're an adult. I know the only time I play video games is like when I've woken up at like five o'clock in the morning and I don't want to disturb anybody. Yeah, which I don't do very often now, waking up at the five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> okay, so that was our media consumption section. We hope you found some good recommendations there. So next we're going to talk about what's been in the news regarding Asian cinema. So I understand, Jason, you have a few items here that you wrote down. Would you like to talk about them? Yeah, so uh, Bong Joon-ho announced that he's going to be working on an animated film for his next project and that it's going, uh, productions are going to be uh, set in the US and the UK. Uh, As of yet, it's uh, untitled and we don't know who's appearing in it. So do we know if it's English language or if it's Korean? We don't know. Um, He says he's got an idea for one actor who's definitely going to be in it. What we can guess, it's probably Song Kang-ho. But he's already completed, let's see, I think he's already completed the screenplay. He's had this idea since 2018. And it's going to be a CGI animated tale. I wonder why he's going animated. Is it perhaps because it's something that can be filmed in live action? Or is it something that he just wants to deep his fit in and try, feed in and try animation for the first time? Well, the story is one um, that happens w- with human beings and deep sea creatures. Oh, okay. So that makes sense. Yeah. One can guess it might be like Ponyo, where we're going to go deep into the sea, in which case CGI is the way to go. Although, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm curious, did he do CGI because that's the norm now? if he had a reason, because you could have done that with a 2D animation. Yeah, Korea has um, an animation industry which is really going from strength to strength. It started weak, but it is rising up. Yeah, like um, Japan outsources a lot of um, jobs to Korean studios, and uh, so like projects, independent projects from from IP, new IP, uh, used to be rare, but they're becoming more prevalent these days and it's starting to win awards and it's not just 2d it's also stop motion and they tackle all sorts of subjects from like uh, animals living in a apartment complex to like uh, suicidal school kids Uh, there's a depth and maturity to a lot of these works and i think uh either a spin-off or a sequel or a prequel to to um Train to Busan was released as an animated film, right? Yeah, it was the prequel. Um, prequel? Was it a prequel? Okay. Yeah, it was in the um, like the hours before the zombie outbreak um, overtakes everything, and you're you're cutting between different characters, like a, a, a girl and a boyfriend. The girl's running away from uh, like her pimp, and um, there's a homeless guy, and there's a lot of commentary about how homeless people are treated in this film. And it was a pretty successful film. Yeah, it was screened in cinemas and on TV stations. Uh, it seemed to go down pretty well. And I, f- yeah, I think it's on Amazon. I think it's on Amazon Prime. I'm not sure. I might have to check that out. I wonder. So yeah, given all that, I wonder why Song Kang Ho decided to do his animated film in the U.S. or in the West as opposed to trying to boost the further boost the animation industry of his own country. I mean, I'm sure he had a good reason for it, but I'm just wondering. Oh, Bong Joon-ho. 
Yeah, but what, what did they say? Song Kang Ho. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Bong Joon Ho. Yeah. Um, ah, before this as yet untitled animated project, Bong is expected to make a new English language project, which he has also been developing concurrently. That project is based on a true event that occurred in 2016, and the director has stated that the production will have to be split between the United Kingdom and the United States, so that the animation it might be happening in Korea rather than this other project. I might have got them confused. Sorry. Okay, that's uh, that's fine. Okay, so it's interesting. Yeah, it'd be it'd be nice, perhaps a nice boost to have to have uh, because, like I said, like we said, South Korean animation is on the rise, but it's still not quite not quite comparable to Japanese animation as far as the world stage is concerned. So it would be a nice boost for the Korean animation industry to have a, to have a notable director do something with them. Yeah, you can imagine it sparking off all sorts of um, retrospectives and um, dedicated programs and festivals. The next piece of news is uh, Japan Society in New York got a couple of uh, films, uh, TV series, or oh, films streaming. Coming up in June, July. Just to give to give some context to the audience, Japan Society is the the organization that does Japan Cuts every summer. Is it? Yes. Yeah. So Japan Cuts is a famous, a, a notable Japanese film festival that happens in North America. Yeah, uh, probably like the premier film festival for Japanese films in the U.S. Um, they've got an online film series which begins streaming on June fourth and. Uh, I've mentioned it in previous episodes, it's Koji Fukada's The Real Thing, the 10-part TV drama. Uh, it was selected for Cannes 2020, and um, it's played at um, other festivals around the world. And uh, it's it, I, it's a really gripping mystery, but also a love story, very existential. And uh, I was gripped by it throughout the, uh, the entire series and crying at the end as uh, like sort of love story. Uh, come to fruition and in july the japan society are going to be screening a number of nobuhiko obayashi's films uh the war trilogy so it's uh casting blossoms to the sky seven weeks and hanagatami and um i haven't seen any of these films except for hanagatami which is just mind-blowing crazy experience uh, so this is a good chance to see uh, some of Nobuhiko Obayashi's last films, and you can rent both the real thing and these and this trilogy of films from Japan Society websites. Do you happen to know the price? Right, the Obayashi trilogy is going to be uh, twenty four dollars for a series bundle, ten dollars each by the looks of it, uh, for each title singularly, and. The real thing is going to be fifteen dollars for ten episodes. Oh, that's that's pretty reasonable. Yeah, and like Obayashi tragically passed away last year, and um, he's very much uh, adamantly anti-war. And these films, they're all set in Onomichi, his hometown, and uh, yeah, it's worth watching just to get a pure shot of like c- cinema from a genius. Okay, and what's the date for the real thing and the Obayashi? I think the real thing is in June, and Obayashi is in July. June fourth begins. Uh, the real thing begins streaming June fourth, and Obayashi runs from July 9th to August sixth. 
Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm curious to actually check out the real thing, and if I have time, also Bayashi's trilogy. Yeah, I'll do. I'll try and tweet them through the Heroic Purgatory Twitter account. I'm sure that will be a great help to many people and me especially. <laughs> okay, I won't bug you about it. <laughs> okay, okay, that's that's great. Thank you. All right, so unless there's anything else, that was the end of our news segment and now we're going to be getting into our regular film discussion and just like i mentioned in the beginning today we're talking about the 1995 hong kong comedy film out of the dark starring stephen chow and directed by jeffrey lau so as usual jason would you like to give us a plot summary of the film so out of the dark is a 1995 hong kong horror comedy written and directed by jeffrey lau and starring stephen chow and Karen Mock. The story takes place in an apartment complex haunted by the spirit of an angry grandmother who has come back for revenge on her son and his wife, both of whom are responsible for her death. Other residents and the building security guards get terrorized by the old woman's supernatural presence until a savior comes in the form of Leo, an escaped mental patient whose main line of work is busting ghosts. Together with the building security and a curious young woman named Quan, Leo battles the evil forces in the apartment building in an anarchic, no-holds-barred thriller. Alright, thank you very much, Jason, for that summary. So, I would like to begin our discussions with what's your history with this film in particular and with Stephen Chow in general? So, uh, well, I'll start with Stephen Chow in general. He's a relatively unknown filmmaker for me. I, like, I've been aware of his presence. I remember when Shaolin Soko was released and it was like, uh, big news amongst Asian cinephiles in the West because I think it was Miramax was handling the release and it was getting theatrical runs. And um, I can remember being in the cinema and trying to decide whether to watch that or another film. I went with the other film and uh, I can't remember what it was. So it couldn't have been all that good. Uh, and I never watched Shonen Soccer in the end. Um, the second chance of watching a Stephen Chow film was... Uh, oh, what's the gangster one? Kung Fu Hustle. Kung Fu Hustle, yeah. That was on television in britain i think i lasted halfway halfway through the film and then fell asleep because it was on late at night on uh, a satellite channel and uh i finally made it to a stephen chow film with the mermaids which i went to see with my mother and sister and um i think that was was that 2015 2016 16 yes yeah it was generally amusing i i think he wrote and directed that yes he directed it I, i'm not i'm not sure about writing but probably yeah, uh, it's generally amusing, but I, uh, I wasn't blown away. And I watched Fight Back to School, and I think I watched From Beijing uh, with Love. So, like, I kind of on the fence about Stephen Chow. And then my mother, a couple of months ago, um, watched uh, Out of the Dark on Amazon Prime, and um, she recommended it to me. And so, because I wake up at five o'clock in the morning, I thought, oh, I'll download it onto my Fire tablet, and I'll be able to watch it early in the morning. And uh, I enjoyed it tremendously. I think probably because it's in the horror genre and uh, a lot of the comedy focuses on violence and scares and um, that's like an easy way to <laughs> make me laugh. So yeah, I really enjoyed Out of the Dark and I've been, I mentioned it a couple episodes ago. Have you? Yes, I remember that. Have you, have you seen other Stephen Chow films since Out of the Dark or is that the last, the final one that you have? That's the final one that I've seen. but. I, you know, doing searches for Stephen Chow's films 
they turn up quite regularly on YouTube, actually. So, uh, like, I know God of Comedy is on there, so I might give that a watch. King of Comedy. King of Comedy, yeah. And God of Cookery. There's that, those are two different ones. Yeah, well, like, just to give you an idea of how popular he is, not only is he a big box office earner in Hong Kong, like, his films are all over YouTube as well. Yeah. Did you end up going back to Shaolin Soccer? No, I still haven't seen it. It's I, It may, may be a cinematic regret that I'm on my deathbed and I'm like, ah, the one that got away, Shaolin Soccer. I, I, rec- I recommend it. I mean, it's not... Mm. It would have been. It's not a film that you have to see in the cinemas, but it is uh, extremely funny, and it is. Uh, but it is somewhat of departure from his '90s stuff. And just to give a little bit of context to the audience, so Stephen Chow was a big star in China, not in China, in Hong Kong, although maybe in China too. I don't know. Uh, mostly a comedic star. In fact, I'm not aware that he did anything else. That he did any serious roles. I think the last film that he starred in. Uh, CJ7, it's a slightly more dramatic role, but it's still ultimately a comedy film, just a different kind of comedy. Hmm. What did wasn't his movie debut in a drama? I mean, early on he may have. He may have had supporting roles in drama. I think he his big debut was in God of Gamblers 2. I think. It's yeah. definitely not 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 his debut. I shouldn't use that word, but it's the film that kind of catapulted him into popularity i think in either 89 or 90 yeah yeah and he was already he's already famous from tv for doing various roles on tv yeah he did um a kids program full 30 space shuttle Shuttle. yes yes that's right as he is like a a variety show which is uh, which is uh uh which he was a host on was to introduce the sketches and whatnot i think that's how that worked and other other famous actors starred in that like tony long was another one that was in that yeah was it all part of tvb so you had like all sorts of hong kong stars emerging from that uh broadcaster yes and he may have i watched a few interviews from him and i remember he saying that he he was kind of stuck in that and then he was able to get more more roles and some of them may have been dramatic roles on tv before he jumped into movies in the late 90s but primarily he did comedies and very none if not very very few of his dramatic roles if he ever did any are actually you know well known today yeah and he did, he, so like I said, he was a big star, but he wasn't huge like, say, Jackie Chan or Jet Li or, or I don't know, Donnie Yen or... or Chow Yun-Fat. Chow Yun-Fat. He was a respectable com, com, comedian, but nothing, nothing major. And I think he burst both in Hong Kong and into the world scene with Shaolin Soccer. That's kind of the film that kind of catapulted him into international fame. And then after that, he did Kung Fu Hustle, which in my opinion is an inferior film than, than Shaolin Soccer, but it, is very, it was very, very popular in both Hong Kong and internationally. And, and especially for Kung Fu Hustle, he did a, a world tour promoting the film because it, it was released in cinemas worldwide, uh, more so than any of his previous, previous films. So if you Google or try to find interviews from... Uh, 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 Stephen Chow. It's most likely because of Kung Fu Hustle. In fact, even if that even that short documentary that you sent me was after Kung Fu Hustle. Mm. So that was the film that kind of. And, and then after that, it seemed that he kind of stopped. And I don't know why. But uh, just to go back to, to to circle back to the films to the film that is most relevant today, Out of the Dark. The the '90s work that he did is. So funny! It is so so funny, and um, I think I, it's a shame that it doesn't, it hasn't received the widespread attention 
that you know say Shaolin soccer and kung fu hustle things because it might be and it's so much more funny are those those later moves of his try to app the game in terms of production value so they have that focus on them on top of his comedy but the the early stuff is just pure comedy because that's the only thing that they could sell so they're just so great at that aspect of the film starting from you know fight back to school or or the god of gamblers 2 that he did or all the winners i forget what he was called a flirting scholar and the mad monk and the what else love and delivery or the beijing from love and then and then the late 90s he did fewer films but they were all just you know home runs like the god of cookery and the the king of comedy they're just some of the funniest films that i've ever seen so I, I highly recommend anyone who hasn't explored those those aspects of him, of his filmography to do so because they're uh hilarious uh but if we go back to his 90s work for uh, again there are he generally starts into two types of films he's starting to these parody like films that he did which out of the dark is one of them where he has this specific specifically absurdist form of comedy which is called and i have written down here because i can't remember it exactly mole tao which he did not originate but he certainly popularized and it's popular today mostly because of stephen chow's comedy style and in addition to that he also did regular comedies in the 90s that i've seen some and in my opinion they're not as they're not as funny or they're not as or at least the humor doesn't translate as well so the films that do that do kind of, I think, stand out and, tr- and live will likely to live on more longer are his Morley Tao style film, which is just like jumping into out of the dark. They're those non sequitur type of absurdist humor where the punchline doesn't seem to have any relationship with the setup of the joke. Yeah, it's just fast and furious. So even if one joke fails, there's another joke not too far behind, and it's a mixture of like physical comedy. Uh, like pop culture references and also like lots of verbal wordplay which plays on like dialects in hong kong itself so i like it would be i I would love to have been a hong konger at the time watching this and like getting into deep into a deep cut of like culture in the city yeah and i'm sure there's a lot of those that we probably missed but i think what makes his humor somewhat i think translatable is that he doesn't rely only on Hong Kong pop culture. And when he does rely on Hong Kong pop culture, it is very often pop culture that has been, um, what's the word I'm looking for, that has been exported elsewhere. Like, for instance, in Kung Fu Hustle, the, the, sort of the, uh, the, the homage to classic Hong Kong films, that even though it's a Hong Kong thing, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of it has been exported elsewhere, so we definitely get the jog. But very often he does, you know, he'll, yeah, like especially in Out of the Dark, he will uh, parody Wong Kar Wai films, mostly in the beginning. He'll parody, you know, Leon the Professional or Pulp Fiction. And those are, I think, references that the, any Westerner or at least a cinephile Westerner would recognize that I think what makes him endearing in the West more so than perhaps other comedians that were maybe equally popular in Hong Kong but never made it outside. Yeah, looking at the rate of his work as an actor, he's starring in something like four or five films a year throughout the 90s. And of course, you know, a lot of in these... In the early 90s, especially. Yeah, these are going to be a lot... A lot of them are comedies and going to be low budget. And um seems like uh, there's a lot of parodying of uh, what's popular in the city itself. And one of the things that really caught my eye about this film was that you had the opening where Karen Mock 
is like still in her Fallen Angels guys. She appeared in Fallen Angels with that orange hair and um, like that lovelorn attitude and uh, weird movements. And uh, she brings it straight to Out of the Dark. And um, it was, I guess the film was made just after Fallen Angels because it was released in between Chunking Express and Fallen Angels. Chunking Express was 94. Yes. And um, Out of the Dark was July 95. And Fallen Angels was September 95. Yeah, but probably, of course, being in the Hong Kong industry, they probably you know, had some inside information that they were able to, to take advantage of. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, Karen Mock's just going from one project to the other. <laughs> and Yeah, and you can see on the small TV that she has on her bed that there's Chunking Express showing or something. Yeah, it's like Faye Wong is doing the dance. I guess it must be the music video to, uh, uh, or, uh, or maybe it is the scene from Chunking Express that was already on VHS tapes at the time. Yeah, and you know, I mean, it doesn't, I don't. I don't think it matters, you know, the mechanics of how she was able to obtain it, whether or not it was VHS or not. It's just, it's it's not meant to be, you know, it's, the, this is clearly a tongue-in-cheek wink from the, the filmmakers to the audience that, hey, this is, this is where, who we're copying or who we're parodying in this film. Don't think, don't spend too much time trying to figure it out. We're just, we're just giving it to you. Here it is. Yeah. And, and he subverts it. Like the lovelorn character is just absolutely ridiculous. She's dancing around in her room and the, her, her family are like banging on the door, like, let me in. You've been like this for the last week. Yeah. And, and I think because that is only the premise of the film, how she gets involved into with Stephen Chow's character, because then that goes away. And that's another, I think, another uh, Wong Kar Wai reference, I think, from Days of Being Wild. Uh, from this moment, I will forget. Yeah, exactly. The protagonist, I think, is, is just exactly like that. To start the film... Uh, he's a gangster or a cop or something like that, and he's love lovelorn. They, they use that specific word in the film, and he says something like that, that, okay, I'll forget, and he gets involved with another woman and and things like that, but yeah. Yeah, and there's like a focus on clocks, and um, they're using like the same techniques, the visual techniques that Wong Kar Wai uses. And uh, later on in the film, Karen Mock's character says, I'll go looking for my uh, mother who's in Buenos Aires. <laughs> <laughs> my missing mother yeah, yeah. and i thought yeah, oh maybe is... one car i watched this and thought ah oh, my next film should be set in argentina <laughs> could could be yeah and uh, like you said it references leon the professional and like it's a brilliant sort of subversion of the image of the hitman especially when he's got the kid at knife point and it's just so ridiculous yeah and that's that uh, that scene just speaking because i mean this is you wouldn't think a film like of this you know of this scope and this budget would have great cinematography but it does it's it's very you know very one note in many things like there'll just be a red cast on the image and that's all they're doing but it, it it's so effective in creating an atmosphere like in that particular scene with a knife you actually don't see Stephen chow until he emerges from the shadows because his outfit is the same color as the background so that's so be so well done i was i was just i had to rewind that shot and look at it again because it's just so impressive that's a direct reference to um, that scene in Leon. Exactly, yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, Stephen Chow is Leon in attitude only because he's just so ridiculous in every other way. He's super talented, but super dim as well, <laughs> which is like that gap between like ability and um, intelligence is where the comedy lies. And the woman, which I forget the character's name. It's Quan. Quan, Quan. Uh, she is like... Um, 
Natalie Portman in um uh, yeah uh, her hairstyle especially and her her attitude a little bit like a, a little a little bit childish, although female characters in, in Hong Kong cinema acting childish is not that unusual. So I wasn't sure if that is a reference or not. I'm not sure, but like she, like she, at the beginning, she has orange hair and then later on, she's got black hair. But then you realize like her hair falls off as a wig. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So at some point in the production, she shaved it all off. <laughs> yeah. And this is also, but it's also, I think, a, an homage to Uma Thurman from Pulp Fiction because you definitely. There's definitely a, a nod to that film as well, because you see the music and then you have the same thing, like uh, instead of a drug, they do, I forget how they mimic that scene in Pulp Fiction, where in Pulp Fiction, I think it's John Travolta taking drugs, mm. but in Out of the Dark, they do something else with it. Like, I think it's with food or something. Oh, I've got to rewatch it. Yeah, it's or like when she when she's walking to the mental institution, that when that music comes along, the tun, 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 I forget exactly how it goes. Mm. Uh, that's I think that is also used in Pulp Fiction. Okay, I'm gonna have to watch both of them. That's a reference I missed. Pretty sure I'm I'm 99 sure. So I don't want to I don't want to say 100 sure, but I'm 99 sure that there's a Pulp Fiction reference in there. Yeah. So I listened to a few um, before going into the other influences that are behind this film. I just want to uh, make try to discuss this point a little bit because I listened to a few interviews with Stephen Chow, and it's, it was hard to find interviews about his earlier stuff in English. Because, like I said, he, almost all of them are about Kung Fu Hustle. Uh, but he talked about, and he was, it's hard to know whether he was talking about Kung Fu Hustle specifically or if he was talking about all his films. But he said, I remember him saying something along the lines of he doesn't like the term parody, he prefers homage. Mm. So I wonder if you think that is a valid, you know, distinction. You know, obviously the line between homage and parody can be very thin, thin depending on how you look at it. But I'm wondering, how do you... Uh, of course, it is possible he may have been talking only about Kung Fu Hustle. Like I said, I'm, I wasn't clear. His English, he was speaking English and his English is pretty good, but he's not that good. So there's maybe something lost in translation there. But do you think Do you think there is some truth to that in terms of uh, this film specifically and everything else that you've seen of Stephen Chow, that it is more homage than parody? Or it, is it true that he blurs the lines between homage and parody a lot, a lot more efficiently than say some other films probably a lot more efficiently like he's genuinely using this style to create a specific atmosphere like the horror atmosphere is really strong in this film so and it's not just for parody it's also for scares whereas there are a lot of like the leon stuff is for parad parodic effect and the Wong Kar Wai stuff yeah but i would say in a lot of his films the the parody is is a jumping off point. Mm. We have to start the film somehow and we have to give the audience for the purposes of the joke, we have to give the audience a sort of an anchor that they're already familiar with. So, and that saves us time. For example, there's a film, of, um, what's the name? Love and Delivery, where <laughs> I think, I think it might be the introduction of Stephen Chow, where another girl is, is talking about her ideal type and there's a picture of ter the Terminator on a poster, like, next to her. And then he cuts to this dark alley. And then we see a character, which is clearly a body double, and then cuts to his face. And it's Stephen Cho's face. There, so there's a joke right there, because from behind, he was with this very muscular man. Like, exactly, the, the same, exactly looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger when he first appears in Terminator. You know, kneel down in a dark alley with sounds of thunder. Mm. Uh, and then we have a close-up to Stephen Chow's face. 
and then he looks all serious, just like the Terminator. And then the camera backs backs up a little bit, very slowly, very ominously. And then all of a sudden we see a cop saying, excuse me, sir, have you been robbed? And and then he says, oh, yeah, yeah, someone took my clothes. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's so funny. But it, again, it's, it's, it saves time. People, people know what the Terminator is. And this is sort of the purpose of parody, of course. But people know what the Terminator is, know what the attitude is, know what the you know, what the expect, what the, the audience's expectations are. So they don't, so the filmmakers don't have to spend time explaining so many things that they would in order to have the joke work. Yeah. And I would say out of the dark is a lot in the same way. They start from these familiar tropes, which is where the party comes in, but those, then they move on to next, like in the Terminator example, then they move on to completely other stuff and Terminator does, is not mentioned again, uh, anymore. And the same thing with the Wong Kar Wai references in Out of the Dark, in my opinion. They they help establish the character's personality. Like she's uh, she's uh, she's been dumped by her boyfriend, so she's looking for something new and adventurous, and that's how she falls into with Stephen Chow. And that's it. We don't need those references anymore. We don't need to parody those uh, anymore. We we can move on to their own characterization, and, and Quan becomes a fully-fledged character on her own right. And going back to the references, same same thing with the horror stuff. There's a lot of I don't know if you thought the same thing about this. I this reminded me a lot of J horror, but of course J horror had not been a thing. It was not a thing at a time, at least at least as explored to the West. So I don't know if you can expand on that if if you felt the same connection there. Oh no, J horror was late nineties. Like um, the the horror parody that I got most strong was Poltergeist, especially with the TV. Oh, that's right. There's a TV in Poltergeist. Okay, so that makes sense because I was thinking that TV scene and Ringu. Uh, I was thinking Ringu. Yeah, but no, you're right. There, that Ringu was not the only one who used that as a device for horror. Yeah, and the the child's voice, mommy, like uh, through the static. Also, yeah. So that like that's what I got. Like it's a parody of Poltergeist, and it sets up like this is why the grandmother's angry because she's been murdered by her son and. Um, daughter-in-law. But it's also a parody or an homage to a lot of Chinese horror films or, or Hong Kong horror films of that, starting with what I mentioned, the Ch- Chinese ghost story, which I, re- I recommend watching. It's a wonderful film. Uh, it's it's really not horror. It's more of a romantic horror or romantic drama with horror elements into it and, and fantasy elements into it. Uh, there, there was this wave of folklore-based Hong- horror films in Hong Kong that was very popular at this time. And I, I'm not an expert, so I can't pinpoint to them exactly, but there's definitely references to, to a Chinese ghost story, especially with the way the cinematography and the strong color filters that they apply to sort of to, to signify this otherworldly mood of certain scenes. But then again, that is a starting off point. Then the, the film goes on to kind of establish its own horror, you know, aesthetic. Hmm. Well, uh, just to look at the filmography of Jeffrey Lau, you can see he's uh, actually filmed, film, uh, done films in that style, such as Haunted Cop Shop and Mortuary Blues. Yes, yes, that's which I haven't seen, but I'm I I know of them. Mm. And uh, oh yeah, the three Chinese ghost story films are on Amazon Prime for free right now. Two, two of them. Two, uh, I've got three on. So there, so that's true. He, but there were two that were released also in '95, also starring uh, Stephen Chow, which is also their fantastic film. So I feel like this, Out of the Dark, and the two Chinese ghost stories were sort of a step up from what he previously done. They were 
a lot more polished, a lot more well done in terms of, you know, production values than what he had previously done before this. And they were both released in 95. So Out of the Dark and then A Chinese Ghost Story Part 1 and Part 2. Then I think Jeffrey Lau did a third Part 3 several years later, like 2013 or 2014. Uh, but it does not. It does not star Stephen Chow. I think we're talking over each other now. So uh, a Chinese ghost story with Leslie Chung is what I'm. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, okay. Forget everything I said. I was talking yeah. about a, a Chinese Odyssey. Is that a Chinese Odyssey. Okay, that's what I was talking about. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Chinese ghost story. You're right. They're available on Amazon Prime. Yes. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry that I'm not going to cut it because it could still be helpful to the audience. But it is. Yes, I was talking. Everything I said. I was talking about a Chinese Odyssey, okay, which was also directed by Jeffrey Lau, also starting starring uh, Stephen Chow, and you were talking about a Chinese ghost story. So yeah. please finish your thought on that before no, I interrupted no, you. That's what I thought you were talking about all along, and it's like a Chinese Odyssey. Ah, okay. <laughs> yes. So those also have you know like folklore elements. It's it's an adaptation of it's it's such a wonderful film. Uh, so silly, but it's also like as a, it works also as a fantasy film. And that's another sort of one of the main complaints that perhaps one can have about Stephen Chow films that no matter a lot of them is that no matter how fantastic the comedy is, they don't work, at least especially his early films that don't work on a secondary level as, you know, like a story about, although I, I would say Out of the Dark does work on that level as a horror story, but a lot of his other films don't. don't. But a Chinese Odyssey works as a as a as a fantasy story, as an adaptation of Journey to the West, very very well, mm. and it's very funny. And it's uh, I think uh, Stephen Chow stars the Monkey King. Yeah, and Karen Mock is also in the films. Uh, Stephen Chow had his, um, at least as far as his male s- supporting roles, is he had the, his entourage, for lack of a better term, his uh, frequent collaborators that appear in, on most of his films. Mm. Yeah. Uh- I believe Stephen Chow and Karen Mock are actually a couple, and they appeared in about six or seven films together, from what I've read. Uh, there's a joke in uh, Shaolin Soccer. He's talking about a character's complained that he hasn't had a date uh, for a long time, and then Stephen Chow's character in that, he says, don't worry, I haven't had a date in a long time too. And the character just looks at the camera and says, that's not what I've read in the tabloids. <laughs> Yeah. So kind of like making a man to come to because Stephen Chow by that time he was a very popular and probably had a lot of affairs with with women that were probably exploited by the tabloids. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Just just doing a search for films that Karen Mock and Stephen Chow appeared in. Um, like the first page of Google was filled with like um, gossip websites. Oh, I see. I see. I see. So yeah, but um. Karen Mock, who's like a big singer at the time, she does very well in this film. Like her com- her comedy is very funny. Yeah, the scene where uh, she has a mouse trap. Yeah, and she, uh, she's possessed. <laughs> yeah, tries to st- first of all the the, mecha- the physics of that I just don't understand. She tries to stab him, but somehow she gets caught in the mouse trap. Yeah, <laughs> of her thing, and then like her mouse trap is in his pants somehow later on. Yeah, it's like, do you mind my hand being there? Yeah, and yeah. Like Stephen Chow, deadpans, no. <laughs> yeah, and that's, I think that's kind of what works about his, you know, what's special about his, uh, this style of comedy, this mole tao, which is slapstick, absurdist comedy, which, like I said, he didn't start with Stephen Chow, but I, I think 
he kind of perfected it to the point that it, he's probably the most notable performer of that style of comedy. And I think one thing that makes it work so well is that whatever the rest of the supporting characters do, Stephen Chow's characters always 100% believes in that absurd world that he is in. Yeah. When he is, uh, you know, one of the funniest scenes is the the training scene in the grass. Oh, the where, Russian courage. Yes, well, all of the all of that scene, the every every training scene, and it's you know, it's he he presents them ridiculous challenges after ridiculous challenges, and he's you know, there's his character is fully believes he's not he's not playing it for the camera and winking to the camera and saying, "Ah, oh, isn't this funny?" No, he is his character is. That's the world, that's the universe he lives in, in the universe that he inhabits. All of those things make sense, like trying to put, uh, to put a finger inside a piece of poop <laughs> and to, to demonstrate courage. Like his character, and I think that's what makes his comedy work so well above all else. Yeah, I found that to be quite inconsistent. It's like to beat the ghosts, you have to stop fearing them. You're taught from a young age to fear the unknown and ghosts and like poop. And, um, it's kind of like once you stop fearing them, they lose their power. However, people actually do die due to the ghosts. The the logic and continuity are never. I think that this that's part of that verbal slapstick that is part of his that comedic style. That it's not. I will say something now if it's funny. That doesn't mean that in the next scene is still going to be valid. I think that's part of the part of the genre that they're playing at. Yeah. It's just, uh, like you said earlier, non sequiturs, like whatever gets the joke. And I like that he's able to carry through uh, the jokes, such as when he's um, testing everybody's courage with the firecrackers and he's blowing off different parts of his body and um, it culminates with him blowing up his head and he's in the next scene he's wearing false teeth and he wears it throughout the midpoint of the film. It's a it's a funny sight. Yeah, it's only later that, and it's a funny sight, especially considering if you know the reference that he is meant to be Leon the professional, mm. and he he plays the attitude. He's this cool, cold blooded, you know, that nothing phases him. That he's he's even willing to hold a piece of dynamite in his hand, if that's dynamite, I'm not sure. Uh, but then he has the teeth, and that's just such a funny sight that he pl- and he plays it so seriously. Is you know for some reason that's what the doctors gave him, and that's. It doesn't matter. He's just he's just gonna continue with his mission to stop the ghosts. Mm. And uh, I love the bit where uh, they're passing it around, and um, Karen Mock is like the next person to have it, but she's like halfway across the field. Yeah, there is a, like an I think I think a couple of jokes that probably don't age as well uh, in the in the movie, like the. Um, uh, the transvestite woman or man yeah is kind of i'm not sure if it's meant to be a, a man that is cross-dressing or if it's actually meant to be a woman but he just happens to be played by a man just to, to show that she's ugly and therefore it takes courage to kiss her or something like that oh it's just cross-dressing that's what i thought it was okay i mean yeah i uh, that's what i thought but it's also possible and that's that's actually a recurring joke in many Stephen Chow films. Uh, he uses he uses you know either ugly women or men cross-dressing as women as women as a uh, as a source of humor, it's, it's not nasty. It's not. It's not mean. You know. It's obviously the character is is part of the group overall throughout their journey. I don't. I don't remember if that character dies or not. In the end, I think no. I think he's no, they survive. He survives. Yeah, I think it's one of the characters that survives. So it's not like it's mean spirited, but it is definitely you know a source of cheap laughs that he he kind of uses uh, in a lot of his films. Yeah, I, I 
Yeah, in like looking at clips from his other films, I think I've seen, like the same actor doing the same thing in Flirting Scholar, and it's like Stephen Chow must not break character; he must not reject him. He must continue sweet talking this guy as the Flirting Scholar. A couple of examples come to mind, not not necessarily with that specific actor, although I think it is the specific actor in The Gut of Cookery where he's told that there's a female, a, a high school girl that is his biggest fan and wants to give him a kiss. And then he fantasizes this high school girl, and then, but then when he opens his eyes, is actually that guy picking his nose, and then he Stephen Chow just kicks him across like the the a long distance. It's an extremely exaggerated kick. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then there is in uh, what film? I forget the name of the film. Uh, it's a it's a, another another one that is really funny and it's Forbidden really Forbidden City Cop. Forbidden City Cop. Yes, yes, where he is entrusted to to research a prostitute from the near whorehouse to see if it's suitable for the emperor and he says uh he says to the emperor but sir you have so many concubines already why do you need another one and then there's this stampede of ugly women well quote unquote ugly women there most of them are men dressed as women uh, and i think there's a, a few heavy women that are just passing by and saying honey hello honey and then you see the emperor cry, and then you see Stephen Chow saying, <laughs> "Okay, I understand." Uh, again, I, a somewhat a bad taste joke. I don't know that that would fly today, but there's he does use uh, those types of jokes a lot in his comedy, and it's it's never mean spirited, and it's just for the for the purpose of getting getting laughter out for that one scene, and it generally doesn't matter in the next scene. It's just he often will use cheap ways to get from point A to point B in his stories. And it is what it is. Sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like there's a couple of sexual assault gags, which really don't stick the landing. Yeah. And it's just to show yeah, that's those are the two foreigner cops, I think, that are having that conversation. Oh, no. The, I think they're the two cops who do speak Cantonese. Okay. Who are the... Did you figure out what the foreigner cops they were? Like, were? It was like Fukien. That's the dialect that, they were speaking. Okay, and that's a that's a region a region in China, right? I I can only assume. Um, yeah, because I know regional dialects in China are, can be different enough that people from other regions don't necessarily are not necessarily able to understand them. I guess it's like they like um, new from mainland China. Yes, but yeah, it's it's, it's like in um, another scene, not necessarily offensive, but. When the when uh, Quan's character is walking into the mental institution to pick out uh, to, uh, uh, Leo, to, yeah, Leo, and there's a guard that's about to stop her, but then there's someone off screen shouting "robbery, robbery, robbery," and then he just runs away. And again, it's an extremely cheap way to because the, the store needs to move from point A to point B. She needs to meet with Leo, and the guard's sending her away. And there's just they're using just that as a means to an end, essentially. And there's a lot of that. That are present in, especially in these early Stephen Chow films. Yeah, it's uh, it's the same thing with Kitano in the sense, uh, Takeshi Kitano in the sense that their style of comedy is very anarchic. There's not there's not necessarily anything mean spirited behind it. Yes, although the, the difference is Stephen Chow, uh, uh, Stephen Chow's output is a lot more prolific than Kitano's output, especially in the nineties. Mm. Well, yeah, like Kitano in terms of his like television work. Oh, that, that's true. Kitano television work is probably pretty abundant although a little little of that has made it to the west yeah like i think there's even a, a kids show as well like yeah <laughs> i've seen clips from For, are you talking about kitano yeah like he's uh, dressed up as a superhero in a kids show he's done everything 
Oh yeah, absolutely. So speaking speaking with Pao Chao, he like I said, I listened to a bunch of interviews, and most of them are you know after Kung Fu Hustle. But he struck me, and of course all of these are in English, so it could be a language thing. But he struck me as a a man of very few words. Even even in that interview that you sent me with Jeffrey Ross, was it? But Jonathan Ross. Jonathan Ross. Who is Jeffrey Ross? Is he someone? It sounds like a music producer. I don't know. Anyway, anyway, Jonathan Ross, and it seems like he struggled to get answers out of uh, Chow. And in all the interviews that I, I listen of him, it's like one word answers and very, very reserved, very, very unwilling to elaborate on things. And the interviewer had to keep like asking something like, uh, I forget what the question was, but it was like, about CGI or something, he would just give, yes, we did use CGI in this film. Mm. So why? Well, because we had to. We couldn't do those things otherwise. So very, very like, not necessarily rude answers. I don't think he was being rude. It's just, it didn't seem like he enjoyed being in the public eye. And I'm wondering if that is partially the reason why he retired from acting and he's just kind of, he's just kind of content with just being a director. Perhaps he just grew sick of tabloids following him around. I mean, yeah, but like, I don't, is is he is he not subject to that as a director? Uh, at this point, he probably still is because he's made it as a huge celebrity around the world. Well, part of it is certainly financial. Like I think after Shaolin Soccer and Kung Fu Hustle, Kung Fu Hustle made him so much money that he probably never needed to work mm. again in his life. Of course, I don't know. Maybe he has a lot of debt and stuff. <laughs> I don't know. But at least in terms of outcome, I mean income, it was a very profitable film for him. Especially him being a producer in a lot of his later films, and CJ Seven was, you know, uh, the the last film that he did that he was an actor on. It was unimpressive film in my opinion, but he made a lot of money in Hong Kong and China. Okay, yeah, these are ones I have yet to see. So, so I'm wondering. So, definitely from a financial point of view, he never had to act again. I find it. I w- I have to say, I, I am a little bit disappointed for him not acting anymore. Because I thought he was such a talent. And his directing work since then, so he did films that he directed but not acted. He did Journey to the West, which is sort of a continuation, a spiritual successor to his 95 film, uh, The Chinese Odyssey. Oh, um, is it, wasn't, he, wasn't it announced recently by Netflix that he's involved in a, an, an animated series, Journey to the West? It's possible. I mean, there's been a sequel to that film, not directed by him, though. The one that he directed was uh, Journey to the West, Conquering the Demons. And then the, the, the sequel was Journey to the West, Demon Strike Back, by, directed by Tui Hark. Mm. Uh, so it was announced eight days ago that um, Stephen Chow is working on an animated film called The Monkey King for Netflix. Okay. Okay, that that would be that would be an interesting an interesting thing to see to see how his humor would translate into the animated medium. Mm. But after that, then he did the Mermaid, which was I saw it and I share my feelings with you. I found it extremely underwhelming, but it it became one of the highest grossing films of all time in China, and it has grossed something like half a billion worldwide. I remember the screening my mother, sister, and I went to. There were a lot of Chinese students. It's it's one of those things. I remember I've mentioned before that I I for about four years I've, I I had a Chinese roommate when I was in graduate school, mm. and we often had conversation. And one thing that he seemed to sort of hammer constantly in me is that 
what's po- what Chinese films that are popular in China and Chinese films that are popular in the West are often not the same. Mm. He said we like different things than than you do. So so you think things like films that you know are popular to us that probably never make it to the West because they probably would not have that appeal. And I think one example of that is uh, which sparked a lot of debate online was uh, um, the Wandering Earth, sort of a, the 2019 science fiction film, which I thought was garbage. Like, not even The Mermaid. I think The Mermaid has some redeeming feature, and I laughed at times. I thought parts of it were funny. Part of it had that traditional traditional Stephen Chow charm to it, but I thought The the Wandering Earth was very bad, but it was... Chinese people loved it. It's something about it just appealed to them, like, a lot, a lot. And, no, and there was a lot of... A lot of uh, debate among you know chinese people who lived in the west also liked the film and there was a lot of debate about why they like it but we don't like it we think it's terrible and it is terrible i'm sorry chinese people (laughs) (laughs) you have to i don't know why you like that film i I get that tastes are different but that is film is objectively bad hey everything is subjective (laughs) well it is to a certain extent but anyway okay okay, whatever but get back on topic yeah, so he did Journey to the West, and then he did The Mermaid, and I think he did The New King of Comedy. Yes, yes, after yes. That. I've seen that mentioned. It starts, it's again a Chinese remake of The King of Comedy, which is Star. It has a, it's a, it's a, it has a female lead as opposed to a male lead this time. And I, I actually would say I have heard good things about it, or at least it's better than, I've heard that it is an improvement over his last few films, the ones since he started making films in China. Uh, so perhaps it might be worth watching. And I think that might be, I've seen a lot of Stephen Chow films. I can't say he, I've seen a lot because he did a lot early on the 90s, but of, I've seen all of his latest stuff, mm. post-95, for example. And this is one that I haven't seen. So I'm kind of curious to see if it actually lives up to the to the to some of the good things that I've heard about it. Yeah. So Yeah, I'm, like, I've seen his, I'd, like, I saw his latest stuff. Um, and... Uh, like having seen some of his work from 1990s, I'm really impressed with that. So I'm excited to explore other titles from the 90s. Yeah. So I recommend just to give a list for you and for our audiences. The films that I've seen that I recommend are, uh, let's see. So All's Well, That Ends Well, I think it's called. Hmm. All for the Winner, which is also known as The God of Gamblers 2, I think, or it's a, sort of an unofficial sequel to it. Uh, what else? Fight Back to School. It's been a while for that, but uh, I remember that was fairly funny as well. A Flirting Scholar, Love and Delivery, From Beijing with Love, A Chinese Odyssey, Out of the Dark, Forbidden City Cop, The God of Cookery, uh, The King of Comedy, and then Shaolin Soccer and Kung Fu Hustle. So those are, I'd say, a must watch if you want to kind of maybe maybe take a glance of his best work. Of course, there's as I'm glancing through his filmography on IMDb, he has done, he did so much in the 90s. Yeah. And I'm just realizing how many that I haven't seen. So maybe some of them are probably, might be worth seeing. Although, again, perhaps there is a reason why they're not as well known as some of these other titles that I mentioned. So who knows? I, I don't know. Sleazy Dizzy sounds really good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the Tricky Master, uh, The Lucky Guy, Lawyer Lawyer, which sounds like that... Uh, Lung Fung Restaurant. Here I come. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. He has, a, he has a lot. I mean, he did... Again, he was, he was your typical, you know, working actor. He had to do 
movie after movie after movie to you know to pay the bills at the t- especially at the time in Hong Kong. This this is sort of like uh, people assume everybody's earning Tom Cruise type money when they go into movies, but you're actually like for many actors it could be they're earning a salary or they need to just keep themselves relevant so they have to keep starring in as many movies as possible and the quality it doesn't matter about the quality it's just keeping your name out there until you build enough credibility and who knows these films might be actually really good yeah and it's of course it's in hong kong that's even truer because even a a popular actor in hong kong probably does not make as much as a popular actor in the west Mm. You know, there's this question speaking to Stephen Chow in um, even in Out of the Dark, where he's not credited as a director. I think his first directorial credit is from Beijing with Love, and I think that might be a, a co-director credit. Mm-hmm. And there is this. I'm wondering if you know, because like I said, there are two types of films in the '90s that I've seen of him, and there are the films where there's his typical absurdist style of comedy, like in Out of the Dark. And he has his more conventional comedy roles. And I'm wondering, you know, was, did he have some sort of, you know, maybe an unofficial directorial involvement, even in the films that he's not officially credited as a director, and those are the better films? Or was he just an actor through and through in all of the films, except those that he explicitly takes a director or co-director credit? Because it definitely seems like the, the films, either the films that are directed by Jeffrey Lau Mm. Or the films that he was a, a co-director are by far the most popular ones, especially late '90s, like The God of Cookery and The King of Comedy, where he—I think he's the sole director—are and from Beijing with Long are the, the one that he's better known in the West. And, and there are a few exceptions, like The Flirting Scholar, for example, where he's is also pretty popular. But otherwise, the ones that he directed are the most popular. So I'm wondering if he did have some sort of influence, even in the films that he did not direct. Well, uh, it's looking at his filmography on Wikipedia. There's a guy named Li Lichi who uh, worked with Stephen Chow as a co-director before they uh, broke their association due to frequent clashes. And the, their collaboration started with Blurting Scholar. Um, I think, you know, uh, Stephen Chow's star started to rise in the late 80s and um, people became aware of his comedy prowess or, with the flirting scholar by the sounds of it so it's kind of like at this point you have to allow Stephen Chow the ability to craft his character and take it in different directions and that will have an effect on the script and the direction itself so it's quite conceivable that yeah he was working in all sorts of different roles yeah and you know maybe he had uh, of course his performance was his own and that's really what kind of is the attractive part of the film you know he's like the going back to Kitano he's like the funny man to everybody else's straight man yeah he's definitely the tentpole uh, certainly of uh, out of the dark everything revolves around him a lot of other especially in in um, Shaolin soccer some of the other actors certainly carry their own in terms of comedic <laughs> comedy like uh, one of his brothers. Well, they're all they were all part of the same kung fu school, so they all call each other brother. But the first one that he meets in Shaolin Soccer is he's pretty funny on his own. Yeah, uh, I, and they have funny. Go sorry, go sorry. Ahead. No, say this. Jonathan Ross pointed out this about uh, how he's collaborate. I think it was Jonathan Ross, unless I'm confusing him with another interview. But he's talking about how his collaborators have just interesting faces. Oh, right. I don't. I. I can't remember that bit in the documentary. I have to watch it again. Maybe it was a different interview. Maybe it was a different interview. But uh, but yeah, and that's true. They just have 
and and it will be impolite, perhaps impolite to say this, but they have funny comedic faces. They're just they're just you know a close up of them just doing a weird smile is enough to <laughs> yeah to make you laugh. And it's you know and of course Stephen Chow is a is an attractive guy, so he can't he can't necessarily pull that off all the time. But he's got a very rubbery face. <laughs> he does. He does. He does. But a lot of his a lot of his uh. Uh, collaborators have this, you know, not conventionally handsome face. They're very interesting. Like the bold boldness is often a joke in his films. People are going bold, or like the guy in Out of the Dark who keeps trying to kill himself. Yeah, his wife leaves him. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny how she lives. I guess we can maybe go into a few things about the plot, a few funny moments in the plot uh, of um, um, Out of the Dark. But you know, it's funny how his wife actually does leave him. It's you know, she just. They're praying in the beginning, which is, I'm not exactly clear why they're praying all the security guards in the beginning of the film. Uh, no, they're playing a game of dare. So it's like, um, whoever... Is that what they're doing? Yeah, because they're, they've closed their eyes and they're expecting someone to throw a, an object off the roof of the tower. And okay, interesting. The objects do get bigger and bigger, but it's kind of like uh, the first person to leave has to pay double. Okay. But at the end of that, <laughs> there's this woman who's not even clear that it's his wife. You have to connect two and two later on. But she just goes to this other younger security guard and says, here's the note. Tell my husband I left him. Bye-bye. Yeah, yeah. And it sets up a series of gags where this guy's brokenhearted. He's trying to kill himself. Then he's desperate yeah. to uh, have a good time with, uh, with a sex worker. Yeah. And, and all, of his, all of his attempts are... are kind of stolen quote unquote from other people like a fridge falling on him and uh or being electrocuted yeah <laughs> and none of them die but that's what he's trying and he has he's one of the actors that just simply has a funny face yeah you know his facial expressions are just enough to make you laugh what else though i think um stephen chow talking to a plant especially in the beginning where you don't know that the plant has magical powers is a pretty funny conceit there's there's the dope fiend <laughs> Oh yeah, the drug addict who's like used as a human shield. Yeah, I'm gonna t I'm gonna ask later what our fain funny for favorite funniest scene is. So I'm gonna so I don't want to spoil that because that's gonna be my my number one. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Uh, but uh, yeah, and I think another another notable and again it plays it it kind of plays to why the comedy works is because St Stephen Chow's character is committed to the role. He does not play it tongue in cheek. He is he believes in the world and when the mental uh, doctors come in and it's played it's it's kind of like this wordplay where he says give me five hundred dollars which i don't think it's really five hundred dollars i think that's just a mistranslation yeah the translation on the amazon one wasn't so good that is it's common with these early hong kong films but yeah, he asks for a amount of money and he says oh what how is that going to help you uh, you know catch the goth go the ghosts and he says, no, no, I just need it for the taxi. Mm. And he, the guy says, are you crazy? And that's like a normal expression. But then there's just the joke takes it to a complete other level. <laughs> level. Yeah. And there's like all these mental doctors that appear with like their coats and says, oh, no, no, he just escaped from the mental institution. He is crazy. <laughs> and they just drag him. And it's like, no, no, let, let me go. Let me go. <laughs> Absolutely funny. Uh, there, yeah. So there's that. I think there's just that just shows how. He's like again, like any other actor, the exact same, the exact same screenplay, the exact same director, the exact same supporting cast. I think I don't, I just don't think any other actor could have acted those specific parts as well as Stephen Chow does. 
Uh, yeah, you've just made me think of another scene where um, he talks about seeing ghosts and then um, he convinces everybody to put what's like eyeshadow on. And yeah. it's like this this makeup scene where you see eyes in extreme close-ups and then you get like uh, 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 a mid-shot and you see everybody with the eye the eyeshadow on and he looks so ridiculous. Yeah, and of course he points out, oh, here's that there's a woman in a red dress that's a ghost. And they kind of end up chasing a different woman in a red dress and they keep harassing her. Yeah. Uh, I, I did actually have a brief look for that because in um, Japanese horror films, you do get um, ghosts with red dresses. I'm thinking specifically of Kyoshi Kurosawa's Seance and um, Sakebi. I can't remember the English title. So I thought maybe- Were those released before or after this? They were released after. Well, it could be, it could be another you know, folklore-inspired you know, horror story that- Stephen Chow draws from. One thing I saw is it could be associated with like fallen women. I can remember if in the in the film a Chinese ghost story if the woman is wearing red at any point. She wears white for most of it, mm. but I don't remember if she's wearing red. Yeah, it should be pointed out like the, the ghost stuff in this film, when if it wasn't played for comedy, if this was like serious, like if this was coming out of the mouth of a character in Poltergeist, like the um psychic lady, like it would be believable. Like ghosts are an energy presence, and sometimes they have enough energy to affect your senses. Like it's it stands up, and it's played for like it's played for comedy perfectly. At the beginning, it was actually legitimately scary. Like had a couple of good, not necessarily jump scares, but scary moment. Like the the video camera. I know. I was trying to think. Where did I have I seen that before? Because it seems familiar, but I, I I'm not sure. It could be, again, it's been forever since I've seen Poltergeist, so I don't remember exactly. Um, and usually IMDb has connections that you can look up between references to films, but for a lot of these Hong Kong films, they're not as well maintained, so it was hard to find. Yeah. But you're right, it did sound familiar. It did seem, it reminded me a lot of, like I said, Ringo, but I, this was, would have been way before that. Yeah, like a video camera filming a person and them seeing it on television is a common thing in horror movies. I'm just like, where did it originate from is what I want to know. If anybody listening to this knows, please, please tell us. Yes, that would be, that would be good to know. But again, that can, again, it doesn't, there's a setup, but then it, it sort of completely devolves into slapstick, like with the, 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 the security guard kicking the head of the grandma. Yeah. After she escapes, and then the other security guard, whose wife left him, is trying to to have sex with the body of the grandma or something like that. I'm not a hundred percent sure what he's trying to do there. He's being promised um, a, a sex worker, and he totally misinterprets what's going on. And then later on, fast forward to a couple of scenes later, where you see Stephen Chow come out of the bathroom with the toilet flushing, and everybody just assumes he came out of the bathroom. Bathroom, and they ask what happened to the ghost, and he said, "Did you hear? I just flushed him down the toilet." <laughs> yeah. And he's just, you know, again, just to emphasize his style of how serious he said it. he doesn't laugh or he doesn't, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge to the camera or anything like that. It's just, you know, he says it as a matter of fact. This is how things work. And I did it. Why are you even asking me about this? Mm. The, yeah, there's a there's a great video, um, Accented Cinema. Um, I sent it to you last night. I, I saw that. I saw that. Yeah, yeah where he, um, the host breaks down how those sort of gags work and like how it lies in the audience's realization of just how absurd like a situation like that is yes and i was, I was very informative i'm gonna put i'm gonna hopefully i won't forget to post that in the description or in the website when we release this episode so what what was your 
favorite scene in the film? Although it is the funniest or just your favorite overall? Well, absolute 100% favorite scene is uh, where, and and it, someone's clipped it on YouTube already, it's where Stephen Chow confront, and um, Stephen Chow's character, Leo, and Karen Mok's character, Kwan, confront um, the Lees on the rooftop, and um, where they've got the head of the security and the drug addict are held hostage and they're trying to make them jump off and Stephen Chow accidentally shoots the husband and then the wife's like, I'm going to throw myself off the roof and come back and haunt you. And like that like five, ten minute sequence is just so funny because it goes off the scales with absurd absurdity as he tries to revive the wife by beating her up, by introducing her to like shock therapy. Yes. And then that's, that's also my favorite scene, but I would, Started a little bit earlier, right from the the drug where the drug daddy is it first appears as injured, and uh, the cop, the the security guard. I keep calling him a cop, but he's just a security guard. Is trying to carry him all the way to the roof, and he's using him as a shield by the man. And then they make it to the roof, and then Stephen Chow appears, and then you know does everything you said, and then he tries to survive the woman uh, using the drug, the injured drug addict as a as a con- conduct conduct for electricity. Yeah. And then I love how he tries to to knock the the gun out of her head, of hand, and then end up ends up stabbing her in the head, <laughs> just to to put the cherry on top of that whole ten minute cake. As she dies, finally she just ends up shooting the drug addict one more time. <laughs> yeah, it's such a funny sequence, and it makes the film. I'm yeah, I love that cut. What did you think of the music? So again, the music. Oh, there's certain clips that were definitely like i said i'm pretty sure one of the clips is um from pulp fiction 99% sure i could be wrong about it uh then there's some some uh music like what the one that the film begins with which i'm pretty sure he uses it in other films as well so there again there's a, lo- a bit of repetition here but overall i i enjoyed it i thought it was very effective especially to kind of in the a little bit more actiony sort of scenes where it kind of pumps up the adrenaline the adrenaline a little bit uh, or you know when they finally are able to fly at the end, mm. uh, and uh, and you know there's that hopeful music. Like I thought it was effective, not groundbreaking by any means, but effective. Mm. Yeah, it had that cheesiness uh, to it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Same. So same with the, with the production value. I thought it was very inspiring. Obviously, I don't think it maybe stands up both the music and and the production values like cinematography and set design. I don't think they stand up to maybe something like Wong Kar Wai's films, but I, I thought they were very creative in their own way. In the same, like in the in a in a sort of a B movie way, like like a Chinese ghost story, for example, or a lot of Hu Xia mm. films. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. There's they have this over the topness about them, not only about the actions, but also about you know when people walk in foggy and there's like that intense fog or something like that in mm. Wuxia films. And I think there's a couple of scenes here with like, there's a lot of extreme lightning and fogginess and all that. Yeah, no, the lighting is really inspired, especially in the early parts of the film and the later parts in the chases. So there's that sort of B-movie-ish, B-movie type of creativity that goes on that I find it very, very creative. Mm. I'm not saying it's Dario Argento or Mario Bava, but it's good. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. It's it's definitely it's definitely. I think they, you know, these were low budget films intended to pretty much flow or fly by only through the power of their stars, particularly Stephen Chow. But I think you know, 
with whatever budget they had, I think they used it very creatively and very effectively to get more out of it than just being a vehicle uh, relying solely on the shoulders of Stephen Chow. Mm. And all the performers are uniformly good. Yes, and and there's a reason why Stephen Chow kind of cycled them through in all his movies. All his movies have pretty much the same, give or take, one or two members every film they have pretty much the same cast of characters so i think he he knows them he knows what they can deliver uh, and of course his collaborators whoever directed him in, in any given movie so i think that's why they're reliable movie after movie after movie mm. all right jason is there anything else that you'd like to plug or say before we close the episode uh yeah i'd just like to thank people for listening uh and uh please check out uh what john and i write on uh, v cinema and uh yeah i hope you track down uh out of the dark it's on amazon prime and it's currently free to view in the uk at least and in the us as well so yeah you've got no excuse please watch it <laughs> yes and i would recommend tracking down any stephen show films that you have that you can it's, it's several i was surprised to find that several of his films are also available on netflix so love and delivery especially which is an excellent film is available on there uh, at least in the US. I don't know about the UK. Love on Delivery is available on Amazon Prime. Oh, okay. So again, any films of his that you can track, I recommend them because they're they're a good time. They're not the art film kinds that you have to really be in the mood to be able to watch it. They're, most of them are guaranteed to be a good time. And of course, if you don't find it funny within the first 20 or 30 minutes, you can always shut it off and move on to the next one. <laughs> you must watch it to the bitter end. <laughs> Oh, I mean, that, that, that's also an option. It, it could get better in the final minute. It might redeem itself. <laughs> All right. So if you have any questions, comments, corrections, feel free to reach us at our website, heroic-purgatory.blogspot.com or through our Twitter, which is, I believe, at Heroic Purgatory, all one word, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, that sounds right. <laughs> All right. Otherwise, this was our discussion from the 1995 film Out of the Dark, starring Stephen Chow and directed by Jeffrey Lau. Next episode, we're going to South Korea in 1998, and we're talking about The Quiet Family, directed by Kim Ji-won. Until then, have a great time watching our movies, and see you in a couple of weeks. Bye.